All right, let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 13. Genesis 13. That's really right. We, we had Genesis 12 last week, and then we kind of got just at the edge of Genesis 13. We're going to start there. We're seeing, of course, the book of Genesis. We're seeing the patriarchs. We're seeing the lives of four great men. Uh, there's a lot to see because we see their promises, but we see their problems. We see their lives. One great thing about the Bible is it doesn't hide anything. I mean, when people mess up, they mess up, and it's not like the Bible just always tells you all the good stuff about everybody. It gives it everything. The book of Genesis, of course, where we find this, remember in Genesis is divided into two big parts, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 are four great what? Four big, 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, four big what? What? In chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, four big events, creation, fall, flood, division. Chapters 12 through 54, great people. Who are they? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay, we'll, we'll get it. Uh, maybe I better check some of those classes again. Okay. Anyway. First five lessons, we're actually dealing more with the man named Abraham. Now, at, we'll say Abraham a lot. But in this part of the Bible, he's really actually called Abram. Abram means big daddy or high father. It means a big father. He's not a father. I mean, he doesn't have any kids. God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So he, for a long time, he doesn't really live up to his name. But he's so famous because three of the world's great, so-called, as the world would call it, religions come off of this man. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all come from Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people in that sense. We saw last time his background, the promises, the covenants, uh, the failure, all of those things. Well, tonight we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at his nephew. We're going to see an event with Lot. Then we're going to see a man named Melchizedek. And some people, when I put him up there, some people, has everybody in this room heard of him? Who has not heard of Melchizedek? Okay, yeah, he, he's kind of a weird guy. He's found in one place in the Bible in just a few verses, and then he's mentioned over in Psalms, and he's mentioned in Hebrews, and that's about all. And some people say, well, who is this guy? We'll talk more about him in just a, just a little bit. And then we're going to see God cuts the covenant. Cutting the covenant is actually putting it into an effect, and that's sort of one way to look at it. So we're going to see that. So as we start, let's think about this. God has made many promises. I think when we started last week, we talked about the great truth that God can't lie. So when God makes a promise, it's always going to come true. When, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, what does God promise you? Eternal life. Exactly. Um, does he promise you a new body? Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and he says, Philippians 3.20, he's going to descend from heaven. We wait for him to descend from heaven, and he's going to change this lowly body into a glorious body like his. What about, uh, do you have a place in the kingdom? If you put your faith in Christ, you're called a child of the son, son of the kingdom, so you're going to be in that thousand-year reign with Christ. Uh, the question of whether you'll reign or not is another issue, but you'll be in the kingdom, that's for sure. Uh, will he ever leave us or forsake us? He promised us that. Will he provide for all our needs? He promised us that. So God can't lie, and he, he always keeps his promises. Last time, we saw a promise that God made to Abraham, and it was an unconditional covenant. If you remember, I'm just going to put Abe up here, the Abrahamic covenant, and it had what three parts? Land, seed, blessing. The land was a particular land, which we call Israel. We're going to talk a little bit more about it tonight. The seed was who? It's going to be some offspring. It's going to go through Isaac and Jacob, but it's actually going to come ultimately down to the who? To the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that seed. And then the blessing is salvation for the world. So that's the Abrahamic covenant with those three parts. Other covenants came after that, the Palestinian covenant came, dealt with the land. The Davidic covenant dealt with the seed. And the new covenant dealt with the blessing. So all of that ties together. So the Abrahamic covenant is probably one of the key things of putting the whole Bible together. And that's why last week I just wanted you to think about that. Make sure you see that and you got that. And so tonight we're going to look at, and I think it, yeah, those these three areas, Lot, Melchizedek, and the covenant. So let's start with Lot. And who is Lot, by the way? Who is Lot? Abraham's nephew, because Abraham had a brother, and his brother died, 
And the best that we can tell is that after they left to go from the Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran and then over to what we call the Promised Land, when they got there, uh, Lot was with Abram or Abraham. And so we're going to see as we look at this two, two things. There's some conflict with Lot. And, and Abraham has to trust God. And then there's promises. And that's what we're going to see in this little section. So let's, let's start. And, but, but when we do that, I want you to look again at chapter 13. Uh, look at verse 1. This is after Abram, or Abraham, I, I mean, I'll call him Abraham, but it's Abram. He, they come up from Egypt. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, that means the south, and his wife and all belongings with him, and he was very rich. Now look at verse 3. This is what we talked about a while ago. He went on his journey from Negev to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. Remember, he had made that altar. And what did he do? There Abram called on the name of the Lord. So when we look at this, he goes back to the house of God. Abram returns to Bethel, which is the house of God, and he built an altar. It says, what did Abraham do? He built an altar. That was a place of worship. It's a place he had previously worshipped. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, that's the same place. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Now be careful. Calling upon the name of the Lord is always an act of worship. It's always uh, an act of asking for some kind of deliverance. I can't find any place when I look in the scripture that calling upon the name of the Lord has any has has calling upon the name of the Lord for eternal life salvation. I can't find it anywhere. I had a guy that went on to Dallas Seminary, got his got his degree from Dallas Seminary, went on to be a pastor. He was one of those guys that loved to study. So when he he was an intern that I had at one time, and I said, I want you to do this. I want you to go through the Bible and find. Call on the name, call on the name of the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord, confess the Lord, and, and go through every place in the Bible, and let's see what it says every time it says, call upon the name of the Lord, or call on the Lord. We found there were over 50 places in the Old Testament, and only three places in the New Testament, and every incident, every place, call upon the name of the Lord, was either an act of worship, or asking for a deliverance from an enemy every time. So when people say, you have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, that saved is not an eternal life salvation. That saved is a physical deliverance. So anyway, he goes back to that place, and this is pretty amazing. So he goes back to the place, and he calls upon the Lord, and he's worshiping God. And and we, we saw last time that this is so great because what really happened is he started over. How many times have you started over? I started over all time. How many times a day did we start over? Because basically, what do we do when we sin? We confess our first John one, and if we confess our sin, He is what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we've talked about this many times. There, some of you may have never heard this. I just want you to grasp it. When you have sin in your life, when you realize you've sinned, you you confess your sin, which means to tell on yourself, and He's faithful and just to forgive us the sin you confessed, and then He cleanses you from what? All any other sins that you've ever done that you can't even think of that you don't remember. So God puts you back into fellowship. And that's why when some people say, well, well, I can't even remember all my sins. Of course you can't. I mean, I can't remember all my sins for sure. But when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That's what we see uh, Abraham doing. Now, let's, 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 uh, let's move along and let's see what happens here because there's some, some great things. And there's, there's problems coming. There's problems coming. Notice... Um, Let's just go to verse 5. It says, Now Lot, who went with him, also had herds and uh, flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, for their possessions were so great, and they weren't able to remain together. What happened is they had so many flocks and so many herds, and, so, and they're fussing with each other, and they're saying, Well, this is where we're grazing. You quit grazing your stuff over here. And they began to argue, and so there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And also there was the Canaanite and the Perizzite. They were there too. So there's other people in the land. And so th there's a problem going on. There's a conflict. And, you know, sometimes we have conflict with people that we're close to. You know, we always, you know, don't always think, wish, wish it wasn't true, but we do. So the herdsmen have conflict. So Abraham's got a plan. Watch his plan. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. We're brothers. We're, we're relatives. I'm, like, I'm your uncle. You know? So is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right... I'll go to the left. Now, Abraham was doing an amazing thing. He's showing great wisdom and maturity because Abraham's offer is what? What is his offer? 
You just pick whatever way you want to go, and I'll go the opposite way. That way we won't be in conflict. Now, couldn't you think that Abraham, who do you think is older here? Abraham. Who's been picked by God? Who's, who's the covenant made with? But, but instead of Abraham arguing with him and saying, look, you know who I am? No, he says, look, you, you, he's showing great wisdom. And, and there's another aspect here because look what it goes on to say. He says, it's not the whole land before you, verse 9. Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You could even raise the point, is Abraham about to give away the promised land? Who does the land belong to? Abraham. Yeah, whose land is it ultimately? It's God's. God has given it to Abraham and his descendants. So Abraham doesn't have to worry. Abraham's like saying, gosh, if Lot takes some of that land, I won't get it. What has God already told him? This is your land and your descendants. This is the land that we'll give to your descendants. So, so the question, is he about to give away the promised land? No, he's trusting God. And this is, I think this is an amazing thing. So what does Lot do? And I mean, when you look at this, look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valley of the Jordan and it was well watered everywhere. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So actually, and I, I should have had a map, but if you think of Israel... And you think, uh, let me do this. I know that it's going to be hard to see. And I'll get, I've got more maps and I'll get more. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, have this was the maps. But if you think of Israel, and that's the Sea of Galilee and that's the Dead Sea. And here's where basically Jerusalem would be like right there. But they're, 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 in, this, they're in this region. And even some down here. And this is well water. This is beautiful. They're all in this little area, and and it's too much. And he says, "Pick out the grace place." And this guy looks out in this area, and he says, "Wow, that's by far the best. That's by far the best. It's beautiful." And so he decides that he's going to pick that. And so Lot based his decision on sight, but Abraham based his decision on faith. And I just want you to see what Lot does. He chooses that. Now, let me tell you. If you, if you were there and somebody said, you pick out whichever one you want, we might say, wow, that looks really good. And, you know, sometimes the things of the world uh, are more attractive than the things of the Lord. I mean, sometimes they are. You know, there, there's a lot of glittery things out there. So what did he do? So he decided, so Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley. And moved as far as Sodom. Now, everybody knows Sodom. I mean, when you start thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you think of? You think what? Sin City. Sin City. You think of wickedness. We get sodomy from Sodom. I mean, this just. I mean, this the the town was so corrupt. We're not. We're not even. We're gonna. The chapter there, since I'm doing life, we're going to skip part of that chapter there when we go through that. But they were so bad that God had to destroy the whole city. In fact, Abraham, when, when Lot was living in that city and God said he's going to destroy it, Abraham said, well, would you destroy it if there are like 50 people, 50 righteous, 50 believers? No, 45, no, 40, 35, 30, 20, 20. He got it all the way down to 10. And God said, if there are 10 righteous people in that city, I will not destroy it. There weren't even 10 believers in the city of, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he, he looks over there, and it looks good to him, so he picks that. And so he chose that. But Abram, Abram settled in Canaan, Lot moved to the other place. Now look at verse 13, just for, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And by the way, notice the name Lord there. Is your Bible like mine? Does it have all capitals? L-O-R-D? That's the personal name of God. That's called Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. That's the personal name of God. So what happened? If you're Abram and you just gave what looks like the best land to your nephew, you could think, I hope I didn't mess up. So God comes to him. And then we're going to see God's promise. And look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, after Lot had separated from him. And let me put this up. Here it is. That's the personal name of God, Y-H-W-H, the personal name. So God comes to Abram. And let me just ask you something. When you read this, how do you picture God coming to him? 
I mean, we read stuff all the time. The Lord said this to Abraham, or the Lord said this to Moses. or What do you picture in your mind? What do you picture that did God have some kind of... A, this is YHWH, okay, this is the true God, the personal God. Do you think he came in some form? Do you think it was just a voice? I mean, we know with Moses at the burning bush, it was a burning bush and the voice. Uh, but later, it, God said he talked with Moses face to face. Later. So what do you think when it says, and the Lord said to Abram after he separated from him? Do you think it was a voice? Do you think God appeared somehow? We know that in the Bible, God appears. I mean, Abram's sitting out by a tent one day, and he looks up, and you can see for a long way, and there's nothing there. He looks down, he looks up, and there's three people right there. And he knows that one of them's God. He knows that one. In fact, there's two angels in the Lord, and he knows it. In fact, he, he, he says it. So, uh, so God makes appearances sometimes. They're called theophanies and Christophanies. Christophany is when Jesus makes an appearance before he became a human being. A theophany is when God has some kind of appearance or form before, uh, before Jesus came to the earth and died. So we don't know what this is. And sometimes I'll read this and I'll say, I wonder if he, did he just appear there? Did he just, was it just a voice? I mean, what do you think? Do you know? He doesn't tell us, does it? And maybe there's a reason he doesn't tell us. He doesn't want us to know, I guess. But anyway, the Lord said to Abram, after a lot separated him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. He's saying, look all around. Look everywhere. Because why? Because with all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. So Lot basically chose for himself, but God chose for who? For Abraham, and he said to Abraham's descendants, this is forever, this is their land. To Abraham's descendant or descendants, this is your land. What a promise. Do you think Abram believed that that was his land? What do you think? Yes. Yeah, I do. I think he thought it was. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that you have eternal life? Same promise, isn't it? I mean, God made a promise and said, this is your land. God made a promise to us and said, you have what? Eternal life. It amazes me to see believers who will say, yes, I put my faith in Christ. Do you have eternal life? Yes, I have eternal life. So, so you're saved forever? I hope I am. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, did you, what do you have? Well, I have eternal life. Is that forever? Well, I hope it is. What does it say it is? Uh, Charles Robert used to say, if eternal life isn't eternal, it's got the wrong name. Right? Eternal life means eternal life. So promises of God are true. And so Abraham looked at that and he, he said, listen, and no, notice what he said. I love this. He said, I, I, the, for the land which I give you, which you see, I'll give it to you forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. That if anybody can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants will also be numbered. Listen, he said, look at the ground. Look at the dirt on the ground, the dust. That's how many offspring you're going to have. Just look around all the directions, all four directions. This is your land. This is your land. And then he said, walk about the land. Walk around the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Abram moved his tent. He came into it by the oaks of Mamre. That's near Hebron. That's a little further north. They go further north. And he built an altar there. What is he doing every time God comes to him and tells him a promise? He's, he's what? He's building an altar. He's worshiping. Listen, when God blesses you, what do you do? We should worship him, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we say, Lord, thank you. This land belongs to Abraham. That's what it does. And he said there's so many, like in verse 16, so you can't even count the number of kids you're going to have. Now, how old is he? Do we know? He's, he's at least 75, and he may be older than that, okay? He's already 75. And God is telling him, you're going to have so many kids, you can't, it's like dirt on the ground. It's going to be that many kids. If you're Abraham, you're probably going, I, I, don't, I don't know how that's going to happen. And then he says, and even if I'm okay, she doesn't look that good. I mean, she's 65 and good looking, but, you know, she's 65 and maybe closer to 68, 60. I mean, you know, that's what he's saying. In his mind, he's saying, you know, God, you promised all that. I just, I just don't know how you're going to really do all this. Well... We see that God is always faithful. Now, from here, 
we're going to see one of the most strange events. And we're going to meet a guy named Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek. Oh, by the way, M-E-L-C-H, basically Hebrew, Melech, is the word for king. Zedek is the word for righteous or righteousness. So Melchizedek, Melchizedek is one way to say it, but Melchizedek is the way we say it, means a king of righteousness. Now, we're going to talk about in just a minute and what happens here, okay? So... In chapter 14, if you notice at the very start that... Now, where, where is Lot? Okay, I'm going to draw this and I'm going to draw it better. You know, because I was an art major and a lot of, a lot of people know, don't know that. But <laughs> Okay, it's about where Jerusalem is. Here's, here's Hebron, here's Bethel. This is this is uh, Beersheba way down there. This is the place where Sodom and Gomorrah is. By the way, I um, I went there. They have in that part of the country. They have, and it's nowhere else. It's nowhere else except this part of the country. There are these stones, and they're about this big, and they're called brimstone. And legend is they came from the sky. This is where Sodom and Gomorrah was. I got a, I picked up one. I've got one. And a lot of people say that's just part of the brimstone that everything that came down out of the sky and destroyed all those people. It's the only place in Israel that you find those particular type rocks. So it's kind of unique and fun to, to think about it. So they're way down here. And it says in chapter 14 that there were these kings. I'm not going to read their names, but there are four kings. One is, Sodom, one is the king of Sodom and one is the king of Gomorrah. And there, everything's going good except suddenly four kings come to fight against five kings. And if you look, uh, and, and Lot is living in the place the fight is about to break out. So look back at verse 8 of Genesis 14. The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king, uh, king of Adma and the king of Zeboah and the king of Bela, that is Zor, they came out to fight against, and they list in verse 9, they list four different kings. I mean, you don't have the Chelorandomer and Tyndale and Elam and Aphrael uh, and Shinar and Ar those. That, so there's, there's going to be a war. And these four kings are going to attack the five kings. Now, two of the five kings are Sodom and Gomorrah. Where does, where does Lot live? He lives in Sodom. Okay, so what happens? Look what happens in verse 11. They, they came and attacked. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply, and they parted. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Lot is captured Lot was captured and taken away. Now, uh, if you notice, I mean, look at this verse right here. It says, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, the, and then here's the key, and they took Lot, Abram's nephew. And so all of a sudden, the word comes to Abram that there's been a big raid, that the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah had been captured, a lot of the men were taken off, and his nephew, Lot, was taken in captivity. So what is, Lot, what is Abraham going to do? Well, Abraham, look what it says. So when the fugitives came and told Abraham, verse 13, that he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, which, and by the way, this, this place called the Oaks of Mamre, I, f I found a couple of slides today to show you what it looks like today. This is the burial place of the patriarchs. It's right outside Hebron, okay? And so the Oaks of Mamre, there's a, there's a guy named Mamre, and he had oak trees on his property, and so they're called the Oaks of Mamre, okay? And so Abraham is living there. And somebody comes to him. This is with his... Now, let me ask you a question. Do you picture Abram, Abraham in a tent and Sarah and, you know, 40 sheep and cattle and stuff? What, what are you picturing? He's got 300 and something men that fight for him. Abraham is not a little guy with a little tent. It's a huge thing. I mean, families. I mean, it's all kind of stuff. So they come to him, and they say, that Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive. He led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit. So he said, okay, men, we got to go. And 318 of his men who are fighting men. We're not talking about women and kids. and I mean, just think how many people are there. No wonder he and Lot, they could, you know, it was just so much stuff. They said, we got to go get them. 
Well, I mean, this is taking a big chance because they're five, four kings with a lot of lot of troops, and he's going with 318 men. But look what happens. When Abram heard the relatives had been taken captive, he let out the trained men born in his house, 318. He divided his forces, them by night, and he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobath, which is north of Damascus. By the way, they went to fight them here. They ran them all the way to up here. That is a long way. Oh, that's that's three, four hundred miles. They ran them out all the way to north of Damascus. So I mean, this, that's a huge victory. And uh, so if you look at it, he brought back and, and look, verse sixteen. I, I don't. He said he brought back all the goods and he brought back his relative and Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Now before I get a little further, so here was this great victory. Abram, with his 318 men, swept in, defeated four kings, ran them all the way out of the country, and then they come all the way back down to here, and they're basically taking Lot back home, and they got all the stuff they got. I mean, they took it all. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. Not right this second, but what's going to happen is the king of Sodom, who didn't go back and fight, is going to come out and say to Abram, Wow, thanks for the victory. And I would like to give you a lot of stuff. And Abram says, I'm not touching one thing of yours. I don't want anybody to ever say that the king of Sodom made me rich. God makes me rich, not you. So he wouldn't take anything from Sodom. But he meets somebody else. And that's a man by the name of Melchizedek. I want you to look at verse 17. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of these kings, at verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now Salem is, is, the, is really Jerusalem. Jerusalem used to be called Salem. Salem means peace. And the part Jeru means Jehovah or God. And so we would say Jerusalem means Jehovah's peace or God's peace. So he, it's not called Jerusalem at this time. It's just called Salem. And so it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High has delivered your enemies in your hand. So this guy comes out by the name of Melchizedek. He sees Abram. He comes over to Abram and he says, Bless you. Abraham and may God bless you and he's blessing Abraham now who's the most famous one here Abraham could, could Abraham be blessing that guy and saying well bless you no this guy's blessing Abraham now wh who is he what is he tell me what he is in his passage he's what Wait, well he's what he's the king of the city Jerusalem Salem and he's also a what notice what it says high priest of who what God? Most High God. This, this guy knows. He knows the true God. How does he know the true God? How does he know about the true God? How did he get to be a priest of God? Who knows? Nobody knows. This guy knows the true God. He meets Abram and comes out there and goes, Blessed are you, Abram, and blessed be God, the Most High, who gave you this victory. And so we want to talk about this guy for just a second. So his name, uh, his name Melchizedek, means righteousness, and Salem means peace. So I've got for you there, he is the king of Salem, and the king, or he's the king of righteousness, and the king of Salem, whatever. And so he's a king, but he's also a priest. Now, who is this guy? Because you know nothing about him when he comes right here. And after this event, you never hear about him again as far as in the Bible. Now, he's listed somewhere in Psalms and he's listed in the book of Hebrews. But there's no other stories about him. There's never another run-in from him. Nobody ever knows anything about him again. So I want, to sh I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews for a second. You remember the priesthood in the Jewish priesthood? What tribe was the Jewish priesthood? Levi. Levi. Jesus was what tribe? Jesus. So Jesus 
couldn't be an earthly priest, could he? When Jesus was on the earth, could he have gone in the temple and offered sacrifices? No. no, not really. He would have broken the law. Jesus can't break the law. Jesus can't sin. So Jesus couldn't do any earthly priesthood work. But he is. Jesus is the great high priest who offered what? Himself as the final sacrifice for sin. There's Mel. Melek. Melchizedek. He's a king and a priest. Is Jesus a king? Is he a king? Yes. Is, he a, is Jesus a priest? Yes. Is he a priest? Yes. Yeah. Now, so who? He is a picture of Jesus, what the Bible calls a type. A type is something that happened like in the Old Testament that is a picture of what God is going to do in the future. Like when they pa sacrificed the Passover lamb, they killed the lamb, put the blood on the door, and it delivered him from Egypt. Jesus is the Passover lamb that they killed him, blood on the cross, and he delivers us from sin. So the Passover lamb is a type. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And let me show you what we mean by that. Uh, that let me give you Hebrews. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 5. And the writer is saying uh, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so wait. Whoa, whoa. So Jesus' priesthood... Is after who? Not who? Not Levi, but Melchizedek. And you go, who's Melchizedek? He's this guy. And then the writer of Hebrews says, I'd like to talk about Melchizedek, but you're too stupid to listen to it. That's what he actually says. He says, you're too dull of hearing. I'd like to teach you about it, but you're dumb. You're not ready. But later on in chapter 7 of Hebrews... He talks about Melchizedek, and he says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to this man. He was the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Now, there's a man in the Old Testament. We don't know anything about him, and he was a king-priest, and Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus' priesthood as the king priest is after the order of this man. And so if you look on your thing down there, I've got contrast. See, notice where it says Melchizedek. Was he a king priest? Yes. Is Jesus right out beside that? Was Jesus a king priest? We're underneath Jesus. Was Jesus a king priest? What about, was Melchizedek righteous? What's his name? Righteous. King of righteousness. Was Jesus righteous? Okay, was, was Melchizedek from peace, Jerusalem, right? Was Jesus the Prince of Peace? Yes. Now, it's a mistake on your handout. On your, it should say Salem there, not Jerusalem, because Melchizedek was from Salem. Where was Jesus from? And not, and not talking about where he was born, but where was it? He was in Jerusalem. Was Melchizedek? He was not a Levite, is that correct? In fact, weren't any Levites. Is Jesus a Levite? No. He's from the tribe of Judah. What did Melchizedek bring Jesus? Bread and wine. What did Jesus do his last night? Take this bread, take this wine. And so what we have here for you is just sort of the picture that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. As Melchizedek was a king priest, so was Jesus. Melchizedek was righteous, so was Jesus. Melchizedek was priest. Same. So it's a foreshadow. So out of the blue. And go back, if you, if you turned over there, go back again, back to, to Genesis. Out of the blue, this person shows up. Now, let me just say a few things. Some people think that Melchizedek is Jesus before he became a person. The writer of Hebrews actually says that Melchizedek was like the Son of Man. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek was not Jesus. So this man, whoever he is, is a foreshadow of Jesus as a king priest. And 
just, just amazing. He is a foreshadow of the king priest, Jesus. I want you to think about something. Is Jesus the king of kings? Is Jesus the great high priest? Is Jesus righteous? Does Jesus bring peace? Is Jesus thrown in Jerusalem? Psalm 110 declares that Jesus Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. So we meet this man sometime. Uh, if you want to, do a study. And go to Hebrews chapter 7, and he goes into a lot of detail. The writer of the book of Hebrews goes into detail on Melchizedek. And it's kind of some hard things. I've taught it before. If you'd really like to get in depth on it, I, if you want to go online, go to, you know, when I taught the book of Hebrews at some time, go to Hebrews chapter 7. I go into a lot of detail on who Melchizedek is, how it fits. Because it says things like, without father and without mother. It's not talking about him individually. It's talking about his priesthood. And so we could, we'll do that some other time. Okay, any questions or comments before we move on? Okay, so there's, there's an incredible, incredible event uh, that happens now after this. So we see this, now we're going to see the covenant. And this is the, the last part we'll see tonight, but this is big because God has already told him the covenant, but he's never cut the covenant. That'd be like this. That'd be like me coming to you and say, hey, I got a contract right here, and uh, I'm going to give you $100,000. You're going to get $1,000 a week for, you know, this many, 100, you know, and so I'm going to give you all this, and so you don't have to worry about a thing. And you go, well, thank you very much. And then you say, um, when are we going to sign the contract that says that? It's not until chapter 15 that God actually signs the contract. And so we're going to see how they did it in those days. So let's look at chapter 15 because we've, we, we're moving over a little further. And uh, now, let me ask you a question. If you're Abraham and you got 315 men and you just defeated these kings and ran them off, do you have any fear at all? Do you have a fear that they might come back? Do you have a fear that they might come back with more, more troops than they came the first time? Do you fear that they could overrun you and kill you? Well, sure you would. I mean, you're not an idiot. Now, you know that God's supposed to protect you. So is Abraham maybe afraid a little bit? Look how chapter 15 starts. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not what? Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be great, great. What would he be afraid of? He'd be afraid of those enemies coming back. And so we're going to see that God's going to promise him the offspring and all that's going to happen and, and all of these things. So notice what it says. After these things, what things? The war. the war, exactly. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Now, what does Abram know that the promise is? Tell me the promise. Hmm? Land, seed, blessing. That land is going to be their land even though they don't own one bit of it. You understand that? They don't own one bit of it. I mean, where Abraham is, he's at the, uh, the Oaks of Mamre. Guess who owns all that land? Mamre owns it, not Abraham. Abraham's just on this guy's land. Now, who, owned, who, did the land, who gave the land to Abraham? God did. But do you think those people down there say, oh, oh yeah, well, if God gave you the land, you just take it, right? Not yet. And so he's there, and so he's got a land, but he's got offspring. But where is his offspring? He's getting older every day, and then nothing happening. And he says, okay, you, you promised me the land. Okay, I got that. You promised me a kid. Where's the kid? And look what he goes on to say. Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? I don't have any kids. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's saying, listen, if I died today, I've got a servant that, would, that has, is like my son, and if I died, he gets it all because I don't have any offspring. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is going to be my heir. I mean, and so, behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this may not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your body shall be your heir. Now, listen, this is, he says, I'm your shield and protection. And the heir, Eleazar, is not the heir. He's not the heir. It's going to come from Abraham's body. It's going to come. And then here's what God does, which is so amazing. How, what, what was the example he gave earlier that how many kids he's going to have? Dust. Dust. He said, look, pick up the dust. That's going to be how many kids. Now look what he does. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. <clears throat> if you're able to count. And he said to him, 
so shall your descendants be. Now, I grew up in the city. And in the city, you don't get to see the stars very much. Am I right? You don't get to see the stars. And when I was a kid, one time, one, one summer, I went to spend two weeks with my Uncle Shed. He lived outside of Ethel, Mississippi. Now, Ethel, Mississippi is not much bigger than this room. So if you live outside of Ethel, Mississippi, you know you're in the country. And, and at nighttime, there are no lights. And I remember going out and going, good, look at all these stars. You, you don't see them in the city, right? How much lights are there where Abraham is? I mean, he, God said, look up. What do you say? He said, he said, if you can count those, that's how many kids you're going to have. He said, he said uh, that if you are able to count them, and he said, you can't. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. The thousands and thousands of stars. Now, let me ask you a question. From Abraham, have there been thousands and thousands of people? Uh, who came through Abraham? Tell me who came through Abraham. Who came through Abraham? Isaac and somebody else. And Ishmael. Okay? Ishmael. That, that's a whole bunch of descendants too. In fact, that's a whole bunch of what we call Arabs. And you got all the Jewish people coming this way. And then you got Jacob and Esau. And then Esau has a whole bunch of descendants. That's descendant of Abraham. And then, and then you got all the Jewish people on one side. And then you got the 12 tribes that came from Ishmael that spread. I mean, just think from that. How many people are descendant of Abraham? M millions. We got, there'll be thousands and thousands and thousands of stars. So what's going to happen? So here is an amazing statement that's found in the Bible. So God, he took him outside, looked to the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said, so your sins be then. Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Now that is a famous verse. It's Genesis 15, 6, and it says Abraham believes God, basically believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Faith equals righteousness. Righteousness. Romans 4, 5, to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is what? Anybody know? Credited for righteousness. When you believe in Jesus Christ, what does God give you? What does he give you? Righteousness. His righteousness. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for what? Righteousness. That's why all throughout the New Testament, Paul says, we're just like Abraham. Whoever believes God, you get credited for righteousness. So let me ask you this question. I ask it and sometimes people miss it. Are you perfectly righteous before God? Every one of you in this room, if you've trusted in Christ, you are perfect. There is no sin. You have the exact righteousness of God. That's how you're going to get to be with Him for all eternity because God says, I take a fallen, sinful human being, I take all their sin away and remove it, dying on the cross to pay for it, and when they believe in me, I actually deposit to their account my righteousness. So every one of us in this room are perfectly righteous in our standing before God. And that's why when it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted, reckoned, imputed to him for righteousness. We call that the doctrine of imputation when God gives it. Now, by the way, I wanted to, to show you something that is unique because the Hebrew is a little bit different. Uh, the, the Hebrew actually says Abraham had believed God and had been counted to him for righteousness. We, we translate it, Abraham believed God, but the Hebrew, most likely, a better translation, it was had believed God. When, when did he believe God and it was credited to him for righteousness? When he, probably when he left from the Ur of the Chaldees to go down there, or when he took the covenant and God said, like, whoever, but there's a, there's a time that he believed that whatever God said was right and it was counted to him for righteousness. Wow, this is unbelievable. And think about it. Any one of us in this room or every one of us in this room, when you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, you have God's righteousness. I, I like to, uh, you know, to draw this up just to show you something. There we are, and we're sinful. We have sin, and Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and paid for our sin, so we have no sin. But that doesn't, give, that doesn't give us righteousness. That doesn't make us to be where we could be with God. That's why, by faith... 
When we trust in Jesus Christ, He gives us plus righteousness, positive righteousness. He makes us like Him. This is the most incredible thing ever. If you ever, I mean, we, we, always, we always talk about this. I did it when we did the 412 Christian Life. You've got many, many Christians, and they say, who are you? And you say, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. No, you are not. You are a child of God who are perfectly righteous in standing with Jesus Christ, and you're a new creation in Christ, and we don't live like an old sinner. We live like a righteous, godly child of God. That's who we are. And it's amazing how many people go around saying, I'm just an old sinner. Well, yeah, yeah, that's how you were. And you may be, but that's not who you are. That's why Paul says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? You're new creation. You have God's righteousness imputed to your account. That's who we are. So we need to get that and we need to go, man, that's who we are. And uh, it is positive. It is so amazing. Well, we got one other thing we got to see tonight. And this, this is when God ratifies the covenant. This is one of my favorite things, really, in the whole Bible. Because he's just told him all this. He just said, listen, uh, you believe me. you got righteousness. Count the stars. And then, uh, and, then God, and then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. What's he telling him again? What's he telling him again? This is your what? Land. You know what? Sarah's going to die. Isn't she? She's going to die. Where's he going to bury her? He could say, well, it's my land. It's not his land. It is his land, but it's not his land. He has to go to Mamre and those people and, and purchase a small area which is outside Hebron, Hebron, which is at the Oaks of Mamre, which I'm going to show you a, a picture of it next week or the week after that, is where they bury her and then him and then their kids and their offspring. I mean, they don't, have a, they, they don't possess it. They own it. It's called by faith. They believe that this is their land. Today, when all the arguments are going on, whose land is it? Whose land is it? Huh? Well... Well, whose land is it? It's Israel's land. God gave it to them. And he says, listen, uh, I've given you this land. You obey me, you get to live in the land. You don't obey me, you get out. I, I move you out of the land. And he's done it three different times in history. And so that's what he does. So let's look at this. So in verse 7, he says, I, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land. And then look what Abraham said. He said, oh, Lord God, how will I know that I will possess it? Does that sound like us? I mean, it's like, I believe, uh, help my unbelief, right? I mean, that's what we are. We say, oh, I really believe, but I, uh, I don't know if I believe. I mean, that's, the, and so Abraham says, yeah, I, I know you've given it to me. How am I going to know you're going to give it to me? <laughs> and that's what he says. So God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the covenant. He said, I will give you this land. I want you to remember the promise. Now, let me tell you what they did in those days. And most of you know this. But here's, if, 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 if Tom and I were going to make an agreement, a covenant in those days, he and I would get together and we would get at least two different animals and we'd cut it apart and take one half the animal, put it over there and put the other half over here. Then we'd take another animal and cut it apart and put it, put it half. And so there's a dead animal there cut in two and a walkway. And then he and I would grab arms and we would walk in between the animals that's cutting the covenant. Because what we're saying is, if you break your agreement, we're going to cut you in two. That's what they're really saying. It's like we're cutting the covenant. So God's going to make the covenant. Now, is this a conditional or unconditional covenant? Huh? Is it conditional or unconditional? It's unconditional covenant. So who's going to sign the covenant? God, not Abraham. So watch what happens. Look at this. So he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So he's going to have a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. He's got them all lined up. And then he said, bring and brought this and he cut them in two. And laid them opposite each other, but he didn't cut the birds in two. What you do is, because birds are too little, so you just put one on each side. Right? So now you've got these animals all cut up. So what do you expect is going to happen? He said, and birds came uh, to, to, so Abraham had to, you know, where, where's God when you need him? So he's trying to push these birds away, and God's fixing to do something. But what I want to show you is, cutting the covenant, there's three things. And by the way, uh, on the handout, 
you see a one, two, and a three, and it's a lot of space. It shouldn't have been a lot of space when we made that thing. So here's what I want you to write down, these three things. First of all, number one, God tells of the future events of Abraham's offspring. This is what we're going to see as he's about to cut this covenant. He's going to tell what happens to Abraham's descendants. Now, you already know that, don't you? You already know what's going to happen. I mean, we know the history, but he's going to tell that. That's the first thing. Then on the top of the next page, and I'm going to show you what to do when we get to the next page. But on the top of the next page, we're going to see number two is the cutting of the covenant. And it's unconditional. The cutting of the covenant. This is number two. Let me go back because I say something. The first one, God tells of the future events. You don't have to write down every word. Basically, is he's going to tell the future of Abraham's offspring. He's going to tell what happens. Number two, we're going to see the cutting of the covenant. And it is unconditional. And then number three, something that's going to surprise you, the cutting of the covenant, unconditional. And number three, the dimensions of the land. This is the end. He's going to show how it all fits together. So that's those three things. Now, it's a lot better if you, if you notice where it says the word prophecy. Do you all see that? That's really number one. Okay, I'll just you can put a little number one outside if you want to. Watch what happens when the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, he's there, and God's already told him what to do, and all of a sudden, he gets real sleepy. He's, he's scared, and it's dark, and a deep sleep fell upon him, and a terror came upon him because he's, he's nervous, he's scared. God said to Abram, here's what's going to happen. Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they will be enslaved and impressed for 400 years. Let me ask you something. When did Abraham live? If this is Jesus, and this is us, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus was ever born. Moses lived about 1,500 years before Jesus was ever born. So from Abraham to Moses, it's about how long? 500 years. He's telling Abraham what's going to happen at the time of what? Moses. He's telling Abraham 500 years into the future. And look what he says. He says, your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. Where is it, y'all? Where did they go? It's Egypt. They're going to be strangers in Egypt. And look what it says. They will be strangers in Egypt and a land that, and they will be oppressed for how long? 400 years. And they do. It's 400 years that they're there. Okay? 400 years. By the way, if you go fill out the history books, you go look at everything, you go to the book of Exodus, how long was the nation of Israel in Egypt? 400 years. It's exact. God never messes around. And so then he says this. He says, I will judge that nation whom they serve, and after they will come out with great possessions. How does he judge them? And by the way, how does he judge them? What does he do? The plagues. Listen, he brings plagues on Egypt. How many plagues were there? Ten plagues. Every plague, every plague was a judgment on a god of Egypt. What was the first plague? Water to blood, the river to blood. They worship the Nile. They worship frogs. Did they worship the sun? Did they worship cows? They, they were every, every, every judgment was on one of the gods of Egypt. And then what does he say? I will judge the nation whom they serve, and after they will come out with many possessions. Do you remember what happened when they left? Exodus chapter 12. As they left, the, the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and earrings and clothes and basically said, please go, please go. Have you ever wondered, since the Jewish people had been slaves for 400 years and they came out and God said, let's build the tabernacle and it was made out of gold and all of that, where in the world did they get the gold from if they'd been slaves for 400 years? The Egyptians paid for the tabernacle. Egyptians gave him all the gold and stuff. He said, that's going to happen. What's going to happen? 
and, and it's just amazing. The nation will come out rich. And then he says something that is amazing. Look what he says. He says, I will judge that nation. They'll come out. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Fourth generation after Abraham. I want you to notice something. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. That's the fourth generation. Comes back just like God said. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. They went down to Egypt and... Joseph had Moses, and they come out. That's that fourth generation to return to the promised land. God will judge these people. Now, the signing of the covenant, and here we see it. It came about, verse 17, it came about that when the sun had set and it was very dark, and they beheld a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. It's, it's uh, best we could understand, it looked like, some round thing with fire coming out of it, and it was like a pot that had fire coming out of it, and it passed in between the animals. Now, where's Abram? He's over somewhere else. He's, remember, he was sleepy. I mean, he, he was over there afraid, watching all this. It got dark, and suddenly this smoking thing, the smoking fires, it says, a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, God made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I have given this land. I'm going to stop there for just a second. So how did he cut the covenant? The only one going through there is who? God. It's an unconditional covenant. What does Abraham have to do? Let me ask you a question. The covenant that God made with us for salvation, what do we have to do? Absolutely nothing. He did it all, didn't he? Did he die on the cross? Did he pay for sin? Did he rise again? Did he says, whoever believes in me has what? Everlasting life. It's that simple. So God passes through the unconditional covenant covenant. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to draw something up for you. In today, and this is not even drawn accurately, but this might be Israel. And then you've got, anybody know what's over here? Jordan. And then Saudi Arabia, and then Syria, and Lebanon, and, and, and you know, Iran, and Iraq, all the way over there. And then this is Egypt. And we say, this is the land, right? This is the land. That's not the land. Read it. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your sins I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. You understand that the land that God has given to Israel starts as far over as the Nile River and goes all the way to the Euphrates River. Let me show you a map. This is, this is one view of it. This is Israel. If, if, if we can find it, that's Israel, that little bitty place right there. See, that's Israel today. That's Egypt. That's Jordan. That's Syria. That's Iraq. That's, you know, that's uh, Baghdad. That's a little further up. This, this is Saudi Arabia. Some people say that this is the Nile River and going all the way across to the Tigris-Euphrates River, this will be the land that God promised them. That's huge. That's all of Syria, almost all of Iraq, almost all of it. And all of Jordan, all of Lebanon. Uh, now, here's another map that gives you a little different view. And the part that's green is, and I know it's, I, t I don't know if we want to, somebody turn the light all the way off. I just want you to be able to see this even better. It, just click the switch back there. Okay, look at this. Some people see that starting right there, going to the River Nile, all the way down to there, plus this is modern-day Israel right there. This is the Sinai. This is, uh, there's Iraq. There's Saudi Arabia. This is the Tigris-Euphrates River all in this area. Some people believe all of this will be Israel one day. You can turn the light back on. Huh? But think about it. We, we, we sit there and we think that they got this little bitty thing of land and you got the West Bank and, and, and you got the Gaza Strip and they're arguing over whose it is. Listen, all of that belongs to them. And one day they will have it. You know when they'll have it? When? When? When the king sets up the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, Israel will have every bit of the land that is promised to them right here in Genesis chapter 15. 
Huh? And we'll be with them. We, but I don't know where we'll be. Well, I'll probably be in Mississippi. Who knows? Or maybe Oklahoma. But anyway, who knows where we'll be? But this is pretty incredible. Okay, any questions before uh, we go any further? Do, Could you go back a couple of slides? Yeah. One more. One more? So from the river in Egypt, which is the Nile, to the great river Euphrates. So from the west to the east. I mean, this is the most amazing thing. Think of the promises, y'all. Okay? Now, let's talk about some applications real quickly before I go over the quiz, which will be fun, be real easy. First one is, we've got to trust God in the circumstances of life. Think about it with Abraham and Lot. What if you'd have said, um, I don't think I can give Lot anything because this is promised to me and I don't want to take any chances. What did they do? He said, I trust God. You go wherever you want to go, I'll go wherever I go. I know ultimately God's going to take care of me. We have to trust Him in the circumstances. Listen, there are all kinds of events and everything happens in our lives. And about all the things we can say is, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I trust you because you are a righteous, perfect God. And how did Abraham respond to God every time something happened? He worshipped him. That's what he did. How should we respond to God in, in the circumstances of life? Worship. The second thing I want you to think is realize that righteousness comes by faith. I mean, think about that. Righteousness comes by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. By faith, God gives us his righteousness. I want you tonight to go out of this room understanding who you are. You are a righteous, godly, new creation in Christ. That's how we should see ourselves. That's who we are. I mean, we all sin and come short of the glory of God. But God says, listen, you're a new creation in Christ. Paul even says in Romans chapter 7 that when he sins... It's not him sinning. It's his old self sinning. His new self doesn't sin. And it's true. Your new self can't sin, in fact. So just remember who you are. Remember who we are. The third thing is just remember that Melchizedek, let's realize Melchizedek is a foreshadow of our king, priest, Jesus Christ. And I mean, it's a little bit hard. And if you really want to get some details on Melchizedek, go look at that uh, Hebrews chapter 7 that I taught years ago. Or I've got notes and stuff, and if you want to come by the office, I can give you some things. It's, it's really very interesting who this guy is. And then last but not least, I hope did everybody got it written down. Just realize my kill's deck is a foreshadow of the King Priest Jesus. And the last one is, let's understand that God is specific in his promises. Was it a specific land that he promised him? Was it a specific offspring? Now, he hadn't seen it yet. He don't know who it's going to be, but it's specific. And what about the blessing? And all the nations of the world will be blessed. I mean, he gets very specific. And, and what about us? That's Abraham. What about us? In the Word, he gives us all kind of specific promises. Now, you have to be real careful because I see people, they'll take any statement in the Bible and they'll try to apply it for themselves when it doesn't have anything to do with them. But there are places in the Bible in which he makes specific promises to us. He gives us eternal life and we shall what? Never perish.